Lord, can you hear me? I'm here fighting, pressing to remember what you said. But this onslaught of thoughts fills my head with dread and I need you. Like enemies encamped, shrouded in the dark, I can feel the fascination of too many temptations reaching for my heart. So I need you to hear me. For I know your ears are attentive to the righteous and I know that your ways are certain. Even when my worries would trample me to dust, still, I know you are good. Your hand is just. So come now, be the salvation for my sins. Help me to begin again, that you would mend this trend of hopelessness. God, deliver me in my brokenness. I can feel your presence, even now in the ugly, in the mess that has been made. You surround me with your benevolence. Yes, your love is on display, and I can see it. Carving roads through the struggles and the troubles, past temptations and devices that seek to choke me out. So come fear, come failure, come opposition or doubt. Jesus, you are my deliverance. Your grace is sufficient. Trusting you is my only way out. Now I turn my mind to dwell on your truth. Curate the condition of my heart to manifest joy. Be my living proof. Subdue the haters. Quell the voices inside. Transform me, Lord. Extinguish my pride. You've won the battle. I trust in your plans. Yes, God. I surrender all my worries, my woes, and my demands into your eternally capable hands. Amen. Amen. Hey, praise the Lord this morning. How are you guys doing? You guys doing well today? Hey, good to see you. Welcome. Uh, my name is Ben, and I have the privilege of serving as uh, the campus pastor up here at Ankeny. And I just got to say, you guys sound good when you sing. Thank you for that today. Can we just give a thank, thank the Lord this morning to be able to praise him for the worship team? Thank you, thank you. And uh, happy Spirit Sunday, we're calling it, um, where we encourage you to rock your gear or rock your uh, team or whatever. Um, I'm uh, rooting for the best team ever, the Green Bay Packers, this morning. That, that's when you other Packers fans were supposed to cheer. But that's all right. We missed that cue. That's fine. Uh, but no, the, the, whole, the whole premise is that, look, we have lots of different workplaces and things we're interested in, but we come together as one body, don't we, in this place representing a lot of different, different occupations, a lot of different walks of life, and yet when we come in here together, it's to, to worship the living, risen Savior, Jesus Christ. And so I'm excited to see you guys. Thank you for being here. I want to begin by uh, sharing a story from October 30th, coming up here, but 1938, so long time ago. Uh, it's a really important date because uh, over, the, over the airwaves of the news stations, over radio, there was news that came bursting forth into the people's homes at that time about an alien invasion. That's right. There was a news story about how um, there was a story where this cylinder, the silver cylinder, landed near New Jersey, and out from it there, there, there bursted forth Martians. 
And one CBS reporter describes it as, as these Martians as having serpent-like eyes and a V-shaped, rimless mouth dripping with saliva. And what they describe, what they, they're describing how these aliens, there, there were flames jetting forth, bursting people into flames. First, first responders and onlookers were perishing. It was just a, it was a catastrophe. And this news broadcast was going over the airwaves. And people were freaking out. There were calls to evacuate Manhattan. There were all sorts of people were called to uh, preserve the, the, the supremacy of the human race uh, and, and fight back, take up arms. It was crazy, right? And because of this news story, or what people believed was a news story, people went into full-blown panic mode. Uh, evidently, women went into labor early. Evidently, people were committing suicide. There was looting. Uh, apparently, one lady ran into a church service that was happening in Indiana, and she screamed out, New York has been destroyed. You might as well go home and die, right? Can you imagine if that happened in one of our church services, right? That would be crazy. And people were just going bananas. People were taking up their, their guns and their rifles because... America, right? And people were ready to fight these aliens. It was crazy. And the problem was, though, that this story, this what, apparently this thing that sounded like a news story, was completely made up. It was a fabrication. And it was designed by Orson Welles. Maybe you know the name. It was designed to blur the lines between fiction and news. And it was so successful that news stories came out, like headlines like this next one here, headlines that said, fake radio war stirs terror through U.S. I just got to imagine, like, can you imagine waking up the next day and, like, you had just gone out and freaked out and looted a bunch of stuff because you thought literal Martians were invading the United States? Can you imagine waking up the next morning to that and being like, what on earth just happened, right? You're kind of looking at your neighbor and you're like, yeah, you know, like doing one of those, trying to not make eye contact because of the embarrassment. But the, the problem with, that happened here in the 1930s is, is the same problem that we face even here today. The problem is, sometimes it can be really hard distinguishing truth from lies. Am I right? It can be really difficult knowing things that are fiction, things that are made up, and things that are actually taking place. Knowing the truth is hard. And if we're not careful, we can end up even believing straight-up fabrications. We can end up believing lies. And the problem is not so much just that we hear lies or that we end up believing lies in our mind. The problem is that when it comes to lies, sometimes we actually end up living them out. We end up living the lies that we believe, just like all of those people uh, all across the United States on that night, October 30th, were living out a lie with their bodies and their speech and their panic and their emotions. Doctor uh, Psychologist Dr. David Benner puts it this way, it's not so much that we tell lies as that we live them. You see, so many of us, of our fellow uh, Americans, our peers, our coworkers, so many of us, without even sometimes realizing it, are living out lies. Sometimes lies we've believed for a long time, lies that have been so uh, ingrained in us, told over and over again. There's lies out there in the culture, lies that say God is irrelevant. Sometimes we believe lies that say my neighbor is my enemy. 
lies like nobody wants to be with me. I'm too damaged or I can't possibly forgive. And each and every one of those lies that sometimes even well-meaning believers live out, each one of them have dire consequences. It's not just that we hear the lies or believe them. It's that we end up living them and they end up making their ways. The narratives we believe, the stories we tell ourselves end up making their ways from our minds to our bodies and our speech and our comings and our goings. And let's be honest, Christians aren't immune. We're not. The stories we end up telling, we end up living out. We can't help but be affected by the culture that we live in. We, as 21st century, 2022 and beyond, right, digital age, Americans, Westerners, we can't help but be affected by the world that we live in, the entertainment-saturated world in which we live. It affects our minds. The reality is this. Living for Jesus, living out things that are noble and good and truthful, living for Christ is getting harder and harder. Would you agree? A hundred years ago, for instance, a hundred years ago, uh, the church and Christians was, were, they were just normal things, right? To be a Christian, that was, that was common. A hundred years ago, the church was a necessary part of the, even the civic structure of a town, of a community. The church was seen as a, a beacon of light into the community, a place of refuge. And if you've been paying any sort of attention at all, you know and you have probably felt and you have probably sensed that something is shifting, right? Something is shifting, and it's been shifting for a long, long time. Take a look at this graph. This is a study done, I believe, by Gallup Poll. How Americans see churches and pastors, how much confidence people have, or if people have any confidence, in the church and pastors. And you can see here that that number is on the decline. In the last 50 years, that has over-halved. It has halved from over 60% to 70% all the way down to January 1, 2022. The lowest confidence that Americans have ever had in the church is this year at 31%. Have you felt that? Have you seen that? And there's many factors to blame. Sometimes the church brings it upon themselves. Celebrity pastors and moral failures that make the headlines. Churches that are ineffective, not actually preaching the gospel, but something that's watered down. Theology that is weak. But then this culture then pounces on those moral failures. And entertainment industries come out and publish all sorts of documentaries and all sorts of videos that we eat up about these moral failures. And we watch it as if we're watching just a show. Entertainment. It's a double-edged sword. And we're living in it. And confidence is declining. You know, Christians, we used to just be uh, considered kind of like those weird people. You know, maybe 20, 30 years ago. Just kind of those strange people with weird ideas. Kind of like the Amish, you know. That was a joke. I'm not trying to bash the Amish. I, I respect them. That's crazy, right? I respect the Amish, right? But let's be honest. When we, th- when we think about the lifestyle of the Amish, we're like, that's kind of strange, right? And Christians kind of used to be viewed that way. We used to be, be viewed as those p- kind of weird people who are like, okay, yeah, they, they reject any sort of like extra marital sexuality and like they give a portion of their income to the church and they like take care of the unborn and the marginalized and the foreigner and the widow. And like, that's just kind of, it used to be kind of just weird, but something has shifted, Now, Americans are oftentimes, or rather Christians are oftentimes here in America labeled as bigoted, oppressive, hateful, 
dangerous. The tide of the culture is shifting away. Being a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ, is no longer the norm. We, as believers in Jesus Christ, represent, if we're living out the truth of Christ, represent a threat to secular vision of human flourishing and thriving. We're dangerous to it. Let's be honest, church. It's less and less fun to really follow Jesus these days in our culture, here and now, in the times that we live. Have you felt it? I know I have. And maybe for some of you, maybe it feels like even going to work or talking about Christ with your neighbors or reaching out, it feels like it's almost like a, a battle, right? Like there's, there's advancing and there's retreating and sometimes, you know, <clears throat> something happens and then social media blows up or the news blows up and you kind of feel like as a Christian you got to like duck for cover. You ever felt that way? Like there's a battle raging on, like there's a war going on. And I want to ask the question today, what if the reason that so often it, it feels like there's a battle going on in the heart of a Christian, in the mind of a Christian, what if the reason it feels like there's a war going on is because there actually is a battle going on? There actually is a war taking place that so many of us haven't paid attention to. That there is a real literal war going on over your mind, a real actual war going on for what's real and what's true versus what's deception and what's fake. There's a war trying to convince you to live out lies rather than to live out truth. Paul, as he's addressing his pastor in training, Timothy, writes these words in 1 Timothy 6, 12. Paul writes, fight the good, what? Fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you, were made, when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. We are at war. There is a fight going on. Now, okay, before you, uh, you know, jump to conclusions and think that the sermon's going to be sort of like a, you know, we need to get back to the, the golden years, the good old days, right? Whenever those were, right? <laughs> Or, or before you think this is going to be sort of like an us versus them sort of sermon, like, you know, like it's this military group or this politician or whatever, before, uh, I, I, just want to, I just want to say right up front, to your relief or to maybe to your disappointment, this sermon is not going to be that, okay? <laughs> it's not going to be that, but rather the purpose is to open our eyes to the fact that we are at war and to identify what or who we are actually at war against. And I realize, like, for some of us, um, you know, me getting up here and being like, hey, we're at war, you know, go to battle, I realize that that can feel like maybe a little melodramatic, right? Because you're like, look, I, yesterday I, like, did some mulching and, like, you know, did some yard work and it was beautiful outside and I hung out and watched some football and I didn't feel like I was at war. And I get that, okay? But the, the reality is that some of us, we, we are a little too quick to shy away from, like, warfare language, even though in the New Testament... We see it all the time. Take a look at Ephesians. Uh, turn with me. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11 through 12. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11 through 12. Actually, I'm going to start with 10. Paul's words to the church in Ephesus. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God 
so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. I'm going to read 13 too. Therefore, put on the full armor. Football players, when they take the field, they wear this jersey, but underneath that jersey, what do they have? Pads, right? They have pads. It's almost like they're our modern-day armor, if you will. And so Paul is making very clear, we only use armor for warfare in battling. We are at war. Jesus himself to his disciples wrote, in this world, you will have trouble. And before he even said those words, he said to his disciples this, even harsher language, John 15, Jesus looks at his disciples, he looks at us, and he says, if the world hates you, which, by the way, it seems like it does more and more. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to this world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to this world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Jesus is looking at all of us and he's saying, hey, if it feels like the world's against you, if it feels like the world hates you, hey, keep in mind, it hated me first. Take heart. I have chosen you out of the world. I think so much of, our, our, of living out the Christian walk, so much of living for Jesus in today's day and age can be defined just as Paul wrote it to the Ephesians, our struggle. Doesn't it feel like a struggle sometimes? Is it just me? It feels like a day-to-day battle. And the reality is this, church, we are enduring a form of persecution. Now, I hesitate to use that word because we know what real persecution is in other countries. And here in America, we're not losing, you know, limb and life for our faith. We're not shedding blood for our faith, okay? So I don't want to undermine real persecution, but the truth is we experience it all the time, right? Like I don't, when I baptize people, I don't worry that I'm never going to see them again. You know what I mean? So it's not like full-blown persecution, but we are enduring a sort of social persecution against us. Many um, are describing it as us now living in sort of a digital Babylon, which means we are now living in exile. Even in our own country, even in our own home, even in our own city, it feels like we're outsiders. It feels like we're foreigners. It feels like we're in someone else's territory. Why? Because it seems like we're more and more living in exile, a digital Babylon. When I think about my life um, on paper, I think about my life and it's like I, I've, got, I've got a lot going on like in, in reality on paper. Right? I mean, I have a, I have a home and I have a beautiful wife, and I have two kids, and I have, you know, two cars, right? Like, far more wealth than most of the globe, right? Like, when, just on paper, and I, I can walk to the park with my daughter and not worry about that, and I can get up on a stage like this, and I can preach Jesus in a public building. That's amazing, right? And so on paper, things are great. Everything is going fine, but behind the scenes, there's this sort of social stigma against Christians that I that I feel every single day. Whenever I introduce myself as a pastor to someone, I'm always trying to read their reaction back. You know what I'm saying? I'm always trying to like see, like, are they smiling? Are they encouraged? Are they, or are they something else, you know? 
more and more, I, 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 I almost hesitate to tell people, Pastor, I don't. I still do because that's, that's what I do and who I am. But, but the reaction I get is sometimes less than pleasant. So it's sometimes like, oh, okay. There is a stigma. There is a sort of social, emotional persecution happening. There is slander out there against Christians, and there are so many misrepresentations. I was recently on an online forum, and they were basically trying to use the Bible to critique God or to come against God, and they were trying to share uh, scriptural evidence for stuff, and I was just watching like hundreds and hundreds of these comments. I don't even know why I was there. It was a, it was a cesspool, honestly, but I was watching this, and I was like, these people are completely misreading the scripture. They are, abs- they are completely 100% misrepresenting who we are and what we believe. And they're even using our scripture against us. Have you felt it? Have you experienced it? We are in a battle. But the question is, who or what are we actually at war against? Because if we don't know who we're fighting, if we don't know what we're fighting, We're doomed to damage and demonize people who aren't our enemy at all. Today, we are kicking off a brand new uh, sermon series called Live No Lies based on the book by John Mark Comer, one of my favorite books I've read in a long time. Totally encourage you to pick it up. But my goal today is not to you know, do a deep dive into a, a passage of Scripture, although we'll get to that. That's important. My goal today is simply to introduce to you a paradigm. So hopefully you grabbed your worship guides on the chairs there. You grab a pen. So hopefully you've been following along. But what we're introducing today is the idea that there are three enemies of your soul. For centuries now, ancient thinkers, ancient Christians are church fathers have identified three specific enemies found throughout Scripture, three enemies to our souls. And they've even called it the sort of counter-trinity. And so the purpose of this series for the next four weeks, the purpose is to learn not just how to, you know, not just learn how to survive in this digital exile that we live in, but how to thrive in this exile, how to thrive in this warfare, how to overcome and how to battle back and fight back the war versus truth and lies that happens in our minds. And so, are you ready to be introduced to the three enemies to the soul? Are you ready? Are you ready? Come on, a little more. Are you ready? That's right, it's football season. You gotta get excited. All right, very good. The three enemies of the soul are these, the world, the flesh, and the devil. All throughout Scripture, we see these categories over and over and over again as the three enemies of our souls. Number one is the world that we live in, which can be defined as sort of the the cultural norms and values of our current society. If you were to go overseas to another country, especially doing missionary work, you would be wise to learn their cultural values. What is it that they actually value and appreciate? We too, living here in America, we have cultural values, some that we may recognize, some that we don't. We really value hard work in America. We're some of the most overworked people, uh, hourly speaking, statistically speaking, of any country in the world. We really value success and climbing and, you know, raising up and pulling ourselves up. And we value freedom and we value all sorts of things. 
the cultural norms and values of our current society. We live in the digital age here in the West, for instance. The next enemy of the soul is the flesh. This is all throughout Scripture. This, the flesh is sort of our animalistic desires. The flesh is our cravings, our sensual attractions, the things our body is tempted with, the flesh and our sinful nature, as it's been called. And then finally, the last enemy, that's right, you were waiting for this one, the devil, right? The literal, actual devil, The devil called Satan, the enemy, the father of lies, the prince of darkness, on and on and on. The literal devil is a spiritual fallen angel and called the ruler over this sinful world. Scripture did not hesitate to talk about the devil, and neither should we. The devil is not just some ancient superstition or, you know, some like holdover from a a bygone era, you know what I mean? The devil, at least according to Jesus, is a very real adversary. And we would be wise to pay attention to him. So all throughout history, for centuries now, from Thomas Aquinas to the Council of Trent to um, even the Book of Common Prayer, this paradigm of the three enemies of your soul has been used over and over and over. The counter-trinity to our spiritual growth. Now, you may be wondering, all right, where in my Bible is the term three enemies of the soul? It's not in there. But the categories certainly are. For instance, let me just give you a a real quick look at Ephesians chapter 2. Because we see all three of these enemies in one succinct passage here. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. As for you, you were dead. He's addressing Christians who were once dead in their sin. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. In which you used to live when you followed the ways of this. What? World. And of the world ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our what? Flesh and following its desires and thoughts. So here you see the three categories that we already mentioned. You see the world, the flesh, and the devil. All throughout scripture, these three things keep popping up over and over again, and we would be wise to pay attention. From the Garden of Eden to the wilderness in which Jesus was tempted, we see that the literal devil was out to tempt and deceive minds. Jesus says that he was a murderer from the beginning and the father of all lies. Jesus has some pretty hard language against the devil. And what we see is that the devil's primary attack against us, his primary method for getting at us, if you will, is by planting deceptive ideas in our minds. The things we think about, the things that our mind dwells on, the stories or narratives that we tell ourselves about what's real and what's true and what's good and what's bad. The enemy loves to sneak in there and plant deceptive ideas in our minds. Think about it with, uh, with Eve in the garden. The enemy's deception was to go up to Eve and be like, did God, did God really say? Remember that line? Did God really say? Deception. Jesus in the wilderness, what was the enemy trying to do? He was trying to use scripture to manipulate Jesus. He was using scripture in a deceptive way to manipulate Jesus in order to convince him that he didn't have to go to the cross to die for your sins and my sins. 
He's a deceiver, and he plants deceptive ideas in our minds. When I think about Jesus going to war against uh, the, the devil right, in the wilderness, remember that, the temptation of Jesus as it's called? What, what, what's so interesting is that it's not like a boxing match, you know what I mean? It's not like an arm wrestling match. It's not like this picture right here. You ever seen this before? Goodness, every time I see this, I cringe so hard. There are so many things I don't like about this, okay? One of them is because look how white Jesus is. Like, that's, that's a very white Jesus. He's not, not Middle Eastern at all, okay, not Mediterranean, but he's white. All right, but if you ever see this, this is kind of the, the idea that so many of us have in our mind against Jesus' war against, against the enemy, and, and it's not like that. It's not a physical match. And as a matter of fact, I don't like this because it, it, it almost uh, depicts like there's some eternal conflict going on between Jesus and the devil. Uh, Jesus was already victorious over Satan, amen? Jesus died on the cross. He has no power. And so I don't like this. And the third reason I don't like this, please don't like these because sometimes they're used by Russian trolls on the internet. Just saying out there, I don't have time to get into that, but don't like and subscribe to that at all. My point is this, church, okay? You can get that off the screen. My point is this. At least when it came to Jesus and Eve, the battle wasn't a physical battle. The battle was waged in the mind. In your thoughts, your ideas, the things you believe to be real, the things you believe to be not real. That's where the devil likes to sneak in. He likes to plant deceptive ideas right here that we end up, if we're not careful, living out. And he doesn't just plant random deceptive ideas. We'll talk more about this in the weeks to come. But he plants deceptive ideas that appeal to our disordered desires of the flesh, right? The things that we crave, the things that we want. Anyway, uh, after Susan and I put the kids to bed, we usually, you know, get on the couch and we kind of like do one of these, like, <sighs> you know what I'm saying? And then like three times Jane comes up and we're like, get back in bed, okay? Uh, you know the feeling, parents. Um, but the temptation, after the kids are in bed and we're relaxing, the temptation is to bust out, go to the freezer, open the door, and get the chocolate chip cookie dough ice cream. You know what I'm talking about, right? Cookies and cream. Well, last night it was Oreos and milk. I ate so many Oreos and milk, it was bad. <laughs> but the temptation is that I have this desire of my flesh, right? I have the cravings that I want. I have disordered desires that I don't actually want to eat them because I want to actually, you know, look decent and feel healthy and not feel like a blob on Sunday morning. But I have disordered desires, and the enemy likes to plant deceptive ideas that play to disordered desires. And then the world comes in, and it just messes everything up again. Society comes in, and it says, yeah, treat yourself, girl, right? You do you. Whatever makes you happy. You know, you guys, that's the messaging, isn't it? You be yourself, do whatever you want. Yeah, go for it, as long as you're not hurting anyone, right? Because that's a thing, right? Uh, and society, what happens is we see that society normalizes normalizes our disordered desires. It makes it, it popularizes them. It's, it doesn't just say, yeah, that's okay, that's permissible. The world comes in, our culture comes in and says, everyone's doing it. It normalizes our fleshly cravings, our desires. You do you, you treat yourself, go for it. And the three work in tandem together. 
So this is kind of the, the crux of what I want to introduce you to you today. This is the paradigm, the world, the flesh, and the devil. To summarize the point of this message here today, I'm going to quote John Mark Comer from the book Live No Lies, and he writes this. The devil's primary stratagem to drive the soul and society into ruin is deceptive ideas that play to disordered desires which are normalized in a sinful society. Did you catch all that? Three enemies of your soul working in unison and in tandem together. The bottom line is that deceptive ideas of the enemy play to our disordered desires and are then normalized. You can go to that next slide, if you will. And you can fill that in in, uh, on your worship guide as well. But this is the point. This is the one small idea, or rather very big idea, that I hope we capture today. Because this is the framework for where we're going to be heading in the next three weeks. So do not miss it. Do not miss it. I'll say it one more time. Do not miss it. It's going to be good. The goal of this series is to awaken us to the root source of the lies that we are living, whether we realize it or not. The goal of this series is to fight back, to begin to push back and begin to step into the battle against the three enemies of our souls. But the reality is that we cannot fight this battle with weapons of the world. We need a higher power. We need the Lord's help to fight back. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 1 through 5. By the humility and gentleness of Christ, Paul writes to the church in Corinth, I appeal to you, I, Paul, who am timid when face to face with you, but bold toward you and away, I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. That is the message of Paul to the church in Corinth, that we do not fight with weapons of the world or weapons of the flesh, as some translations say. Our weapons are not of this world. And if we try to fight spiritual battles with fleshly, earthly weapons through politics or economics or whatever, it's a losing battle every time. I love that scene in Indiana Jones. You know the one I'm talking about where there's this guy who whips out his sword and he, he's flashing his sword around and he's whipping it around and he's about to do this intense, super important battle, right? There's a, I think there should be a picture of that. And he's about to like go to, go to a duel with Indiana Jones. You ever seen that scene? You know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah? And what happens then? What happens is that Indiana Jones, rather than engaging in this fight, what does he do? He pulls out his gun and he shoots him. The bottom line, and you've heard this before, is you don't bring a knife to a gunfight, right? In the same way, we do not bring the weapons of this world, the solutions of this world, the solutions that we conjure up in our flesh. We do not bring worldly weapons into a spiritual battle. But rather, you and I 
you and I are called to learn how to wield, as Paul says, divine weapons. Weapons given by God. Armor given by the Lord. We must go to war against the lies that we live. We must go to war against the lies that we live. Our fight is not against a political enemy. Our fight is not against your grumpy boss. Our fight is not against some foreign military group or any other person made of flesh and blood. Our fight, our struggle, our war is against the spiritual forces of the enemy. That is who we fight against. We must learn how to wield these divine weapons. We must take our minds back for joy and peace and goodness and love. We will struggle, church. We are in the battle. It will be hard, but the gospel of Jesus Christ is that we don't have to succumb to the battle. We don't have to fall prey to it. We don't have to play the games of the enemy and of the world. And we, as believers in Jesus Christ, we hold on to the hope that the struggle may actually be good for us. Amen? That the struggle is what builds something in us. That the struggle is something that even God can use to do a godly, good, holy work within us. As 2 Corinthians 4, 17 says, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Church, we have a glory waiting for us. And these temporary struggles will not overcome us. Amen. We have got to go against the lies. And some of you know you feel the weight of some of the lies that you've been living in this life. Maybe some of you have been telling yourself some of the lies of self-defeat, self-hatred, lies of despair or depression. Lies that the enemy tries to whisper in your mind like you don't deserve to have friends or you'll never really be loved. Darker lies that say things like you're justified to hold resentment and unforgiveness against that person. Lies that tell you that your cynicism is just, that your worry will protect you. Some of you live under the weight of these lies every day, and maybe you haven't even been able to identify them until now. Jesus says we will have trouble, but he doesn't stop there. He says, take heart, for I have overcome the world. He's overcome. It's not some wrestling match with the devil. We worship a Christ who is victorious. And so for the next three weeks, as we continue in this series, my prayer for every one of you is that we would battle for our freedom and our minds, that we would battle for peace and joy and love, that we would strive and fight for that promise that Jesus offers when he says you can have life and have it to the full. Life in abundance. That when the world and the pressures come crashing in around us, that we worship a Savior 
who offers us peace. We don't have to succumb and we don't have to fight with the weapons that the world tries to get us to fight with and make enemies out of people who are never meant to be our enemies in the first place. Jesus is offering us a better way. Jesus is willing to offer us and armor us up with his righteousness and his goodness and his love. Will you take up the fight? Will you wield these divine weapons? Will you come against strongholds and the enemy's lies? Will you choose to live for truth? Will you join me and join all of us the next three weeks? In small groups, in communities with one another, confessing to one another, being real about our struggles, will you step into it? Now's the time. Our small group starts this Wednesday, six o'clock. Be there. You're all invited. We'll make room somehow. I don't know how, but be there. We have two other small groups meeting. Join them. Don't let this just be words. Don't let this just be a message that you hear and you're like, yeah, good thoughts. Good thoughts, Ben. Right? That's, that's, not, that's not the point. The point is to go to battle. However long it takes. And we do it together. Amen, church? We do it together.